John 20, verse 1. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and join me there as we continue our preaching series through the Gospel of John. Uh, The words will be on the screen if you need it, but if you have a Bible or want a hard copy, uh, there should be some on the seats in front of you underneath there. So John 20, verse 1 is where we'll be. Uh, My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and just want to again welcome you and say that we're so glad that you're with us. And reminder, Darren's going to mention this later in the service with the announcements, but reminder, uh, next week we are going back to our two-service schedule, okay? So this week, right, obviously one service, 10 a.m., but next week uh, we're back into our normal rhythm. The summer schedule is going to be done, and we'll have a 9 o'clock service and a 10.30 service. And I know for some of us, introverts in the room are like, yeah, we can spread out and there's going to be more room and I don't have to sit as close to people and I don't have to say say hi to as many people. But for some of us that are like, ah, full room, this is exciting. I love the energy in the room. Yeah, it might be a little sad. Uh, but wanted you to know, uh, part of the reason we're doing that is because um, most Sundays this summer, it's felt kind of crowded, right? With just one service, there's not a lot of room uh, or people come in. We've actually had people come in and like leave. They've like looked at how full it was and they're like, I'm out, like, I'm going home. And so we, we want to be able to grow, right? We don't, we don't just exist for our own good, right? If this were just about us, we could just like close the doors and be like, hey, church is full, You know, like find another church. We're good here. Um, But we're not here just for us, right? Part of our call is to go and engage the world and our city and love our neighbors and invite uh, people to know Jesus and join us here. So um, we need to create space for that. And so going to two services is a way to do that. And so some of the services might, uh, typically our nine o'clock service is a little lighter. So if you're like one of those introverts and want to be around less people, nine o'clock is going to be the service for you. Uh, 10.30 is usually a little uh, more full. And actually I would say if you're on the fence about which service to attend, you're like, ah, it's a toss up. doesn't really matter. Uh, It might be helpful to come to the nine o'clock service just because it's usually a little bit lighter. So it'd be helpful to have a few more people in there uh, to start. So if that's you and you're on the fence, nine o'clock might be a good route for you to go. But uh, we are excited about the fall, getting you know schools back in session, getting back into gear and just seeing what God does here in the months ahead. So don't forget, don't show up at 10 next week um, unless you're coming early for the 1030 service and want to hang out. That's okay. Um, with that, let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, thank you for this time together as a church family. We are grateful for another Sunday morning. Thanks for just the beautiful day that it is and um, your goodness. Just we're just reminded of all that we have, uh, all the blessings we enjoy, and they come from your hand. So thank you. And Father, we thank you for your word that you uh, have made yourself known to us in scripture. And so would you help us now as we read it and study it together? Uh, Help us understand what we read by your spirit. Help us uh, apply it to our lives. Would our hearts be soft and receptive this morning? Um, Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, you heard it read aloud already. John 20, uh, starting in verse 1, the events of that first Easter morning. So this is Resurrection Sunday, uh, the empty tomb, Easter in August. We don't have an egg hunt for you, but it's Easter that we're looking at. And we've talked about before how for Christians, really every Sunday is Easter Sunday, right? Uh, Jesus is alive, 
Still, uh, we celebrate together his victory over the grave and this new life that we have in him. Every Sunday, we celebrate that. Uh, But as we look at the empty tomb of John chapter 20, we have to realize that for many of us, it's sometimes hard to wrap our head and our heart around that truth. Uh, Or for many modern people, we're skeptical of those claims, the resurrection of Jesus, because You know, dead people normally stay dead. And so this is a very uh, out of the ordinary event. And so we wonder, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Can we really believe that in the modern era? And when uh, I talk with skeptics or wonder about that, I always think about this Tim Keller quote that I've shared before, but it's worth revisiting. He says this, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Even though they don't quite believe in it, they should want it to be true. And he says this, most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. He says, this view sacrifices purpose and hope for our world, right? There's, there's no greater story. There's no greater purpose in all of this. We're, we're here by accident and everything's just going to burn up eventually. But he says, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then it means that there's infinite hope for our world and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world If the resurrection of Jesus happened, he says, there's hope that God is not done with our world. He is restoring it, bringing true justice for the oppressed, true peace in the end of war, true healing that our world desperately needs. He says, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then that changes everything. And gives us incredible reason for hope that God's not done here. There's hope here. And so, not only do we as Christians believe that the resurrection actually happened, it's objectively true, it's a real historical event, but we also believe that it's incredibly compelling. It's incredibly good news that is is reason to celebrate because it's nothing less than the beginning of God renewing all things. And so we're going to look at and try and wrap our heads around this massive claim of the resurrection this morning. You heard how the text began in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. On the first day of the week, it tells us Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. See, Jesus died on a Friday and then was buried by our good friend J of A, Joseph of Arimathea last week, and Nicodemus. And now it says it's the first day of the week. Uh, a new week, which would mean this is Sunday morning that we're looking at. Mary goes early, the text tells us, while it was still dark, likely showing her, her devotion to Jesus to complete the burial process that was left uh, partially finished on Friday. Now, John here only mentions Mary Magdalene, but from the other Gospels, we read that there were actually some other women with her, either here in verse 1 uh, or a few verses later when she's at the tomb again. But John decides to, to highlight Mary specifically, and I think we'll see why as we go. 
Mary Magdalene hasn't shown up a lot in the gospel of John other than here and at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified. But we do know that she was a follower of Jesus. She was devoted to him. She uh, traveled along with him and his uh, other disciples. And she arrives at the tomb and she sees the stone rolled away. And you see her initial reaction is uh, maybe some confusion or fear. She doesn't really know what happens. She thinks that maybe the body has been stolen. And she, she ran to tell Peter, right? Verse two told us, and it says the other disciple. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. You remember as we've read through the gospel of John, there's been this unnamed disciple that's just called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Most scholars and commentators think that this is the apostle John, the author of the gospel of John, uh, referring to himself. Whenever it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, which is an interesting way to refer to yourself. That could be the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's me. Um, And yet it could be a really beautiful picture of seeing his identity uh, as one who is loved by Jesus. So Peter and John received the word and look at how they respond. Verse three says, so Peter and the other disciple, that's John started for the tomb and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So there's a lot going on in the text here, but the first thing we can see right on the surface is we have an empty tomb. Peter and John reach the tomb and they see the strips of linen that were used to wrap Jesus. They see his head cloth or face cloth that's left lying there separate. The tomb is empty. Uh, Jesus is not there, which is really surprising because just a few days ago, he was crucified or he died a criminal's death on a cross and then was laid in this very tomb. So there has to be some kind of explanation here for what has happened. As we read the text, we sense that there's something big going on here. There's kind of this this, this frantic pace to the passage. And the first clue is there's all this, did you see that there's all this running going on? Right, Mary in verse two, it says she came running to Peter and John. Then it says Peter and John are running to the tomb. Uh, Then it says that one of them outran the other. There's all these references to running. There's actually more references to running in these few verses here than all the other gospels combined. You you can fact check me on that. Just go try and find in the other gospels examples of people running. I don't think you're going to find it. The, The Bible actually in the gospels rarely mentions people running. It's kind of a, a unique uh, instance here. And so if, if you're a runner by hobby, that maybe, you know, maybe you should reconsider your hobby because it's <clears throat> just saying it's not really in the Bible. So should you really be doing it? I don't know. But so he said, there's all this running. There's this, this, this energy going on about something big is happening here. 
It's a clue. And there's a bit of humor in it too. You, you probably notice this in verse four. It says both Peter and John were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Kind of an interesting detail, right? Why, why is that in the Bible? Jo- John is the author of this gospel, right? So John, the one who won the race, is, is writing, right? And he and Peter are running to the tomb. And he just happens to mention that, that he won the race, I, I think that's kind of fun. <laughs> you know, men, men, we can be competitive sometimes, can't we? And this friendly competition between Peter and John, maybe, and John wins the foot race. And now for all of eternity, the world knows who is faster. It's like, Peter, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. I beat you in a foot race. I think that's kind of cool. And really, in all seriousness, we don't really know why that detail is added there. And some try to, like scholars over the years, try to like whip up a lot of symbolism in that. Like, you know, John got there first. And so he like represents the Gentile church and how they were quick to receive, you know, the gospel and the message of the resurrection. And Peter represents the Jewish church who lagged behind a little bit and it was harder for them to believe or things like that. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, that sounds like kind of a stretch To me, I don't know if that's exactly the point the text is trying to make. Uh, Looking back into the early days of church history, uh, the kind of ancient explanation for why this is in there is simply it just uh, points to the fact that John was younger than Peter. And so John was a spring chicken able to run a little quicker and he just happened to get there first. And so uh, that's, it's a simple explanation like that. But either way, they reached the tomb. And we have a picture, an illustration of what a tomb back in the first century would look like. A family tomb would would look something like this, a cave or a kind of uh, crafted into the hillside there with a circular stone in front, kind of sealing the tomb that could roll back and forth. And you'd have to uh, stoop to enter it. But then once inside, it was a little uh, higher ceiling with a bench or a few slabs there where you could lay a body. So just to get an idea of what they arrived and saw. And look again what happens when they arrive. With this in my verse six, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So they find in the tomb strips of linen and the face cloth, a cloth that would have been around Jesus' head, that's, that's separate and still lying in its place. And it, the language makes it seem like it's kind of intentionally folded maybe or, or set there specifically. There's some, some interesting details, right? Mar- Mary thinks, right, when she saw something, it's back in verse two, that someone has stolen the body. This is the work maybe of a, a grave robber or the Jewish leaders who wanted to add insult to injury with Jesus' death. It would have been uh, horrific, really, for uh, someone who loved Jesus or who loved anyone, a family member that dies, uh, to not be able to honor them in burial. This would be a big, tragic situation. So that's what Mary thinks is going on. But the details really show us that this isn't the work of, of robbers. If you were robbing a grave, stealing the body, uh, you wouldn't take the time to remove the strips of linen and place them there and take off the head cloth and fold that neatly and set that down, right? You'd be trying to commit a crime. You'd be getting out of there as quick as you can. And so it seems like there's intentionality here in what's happened. There's purpose here. Something purposeful has happened at the empty tomb. It's not chaotic or haphazard. 
And we know from history that, that the empty tomb and then the appearances of Jesus to his disciples um, convinced them that Jesus was in fact alive. He did rise from the dead. He was alive again. The resurrection happened. And, and so we today have to grapple with this, this historical fact of an empty tomb. And how do we make sense of this? Because there was no body in the tomb, as the text tells us. And really, uh, nobody was ever you know, produced or shown to be found later. And this is important for a few reasons. Um, first, sometimes today we'll alter the message of the resurrection in scholarly circles, this comes up, or even on like a popular level, they'll say, well, they claimed that Jesus uh, rose again, that the resurrection happened, but what they really meant was like his spirit, you know, came back to life and his spirit lived on or lived on in their memories or his, you know, their, his time with them was so meaningful that that, that kind of lived on or like spiritually they had this vision of him or not, not bodily, not literal physical res- resurrection. Maybe you've heard that today or people will make that claim. Um, but that perspective is really misreading the text and it's misreading what the early church claimed and what scripture claims because for the Jews and in the ancient world, resurrection meant bodily resurrection and nothing else. When they talked about resurrection and they claimed resurrection, that's what they meant bodily, like literally a body up out of the grave, walking again, living again. So they didn't have a category for just some like, you know, vague spiritual resurrection. When they talked about resurrection, they meant bodily, physical, literal resurrection. The second piece we have to grapple with is, again, that no body was ever found. And there was a great reason for the Jewish leaders uh, to produce the body, to, hey, uh, here's the body. All you Christians are crazy and wrong. He's still dead, and here's proof of it, right? So no body was ever found, even though there would have been great reason for them to want to show that evidence. They could have stopped the Jesus movement. Obviously, they wanted to get rid of Jesus and they killed him. And so if his, his followers got real hyped up and worked up and saying he's alive, they could have just proven, hey, here's the body. He's still dead. Go home and do whatever it is you do. But that didn't happen. And, and even non-Christian historians who look at this reality will admit that, that something radical must have happened to those early disciples to transform them. In fact, there was a a Christianity Today article a number of years ago that was titled, What Skeptic Scholars Admit About the Resurrection Appearance of Jesus. Again, what skeptic scholars admit. And so even even non-Christians would say, you know, yes, something big happened. This wasn't just like made up later or there aren't a lot of great explanations for this other than something radical must have happened to transform the disciples. Because before this, right, they went home. They were, it was game over. Right? They, he died a criminal. They all went back to fishing or doing whatever they were doing. And so I guess Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's not who he said he was because look at how he died. He didn't win. This is what they would think. But now they go from this place of despair to being fearless, devoted disciples, preaching the resurrection and the empty tomb, even to their death. How do, we, how do you explain that? 
Now, it's also interesting that in the Gospel of John, uh, there have been several sets of seven. We've talked about this before. John likes the number seven. And the Bible, God likes the number seven. There's a lot of, you know, important sevens in, in the Bible. But in the Gospel of John specifically, there are these seven I am statements. Do you remember that? Where Jesus tells us who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Right? And so he, he discloses to us who he is. And there's seven of those I am statements. I am the good shepherd right throughout the book. There's also seven uh, miraculous signs that John points to that Jesus did that tell us who he is. So when Jesus turns water into wine, when he uh, heals certain people, when he feeds the crowd of 5,000, and these all mostly take place in the first half of the book. These seven signs showing us who Jesus is. But it's interesting because some scholars, depending on uh, how you count the miracles, would look at uh, the resurrection of Jesus as the seventh and greatest sign. Some would say, no, it's the eighth and the seventh was when he rose, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead back in chapter 11. Remember Lazarus coming back to life? Jesus brought him back to life. Some would say that's the seventh sign. And so the resurrection of Jesus is, is the eighth sign, right? The, the, the first of a new day, a new era, a new set, uh, showing new creation, newness. But, but some would say, no, the, the resurrection of Jesus was the seventh sign, which is, again, Powerful in itself, this act of completion. This is really fulfilling what Jesus came to do and as he rose again. And so however you um, crumble the cookie, whether you think this is the seventh or the eighth, however you do the math there, either way, it's significant. John's kind of highlighting this is what everything has been pointing towards and leading up to. It's a big deal. And in the empty tomb here, you see these echoes of the Lazarus uh, resurrection. Think back to chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's interesting there, if you go back and look, Lazarus, he came out of of his grave, but it tells us that he still had, it mentions this specifically, he still had the strips of linen sort of like stuck on him. And and his faith uh, cloth was still on him. And and Jesus is like, hey, can we help this guy out? Like he's alive again. Can you get get the grave clothes off him sort of thing? It's interesting that those two items are mentioned and they're mentioned again here, but with Jesus, notice the connection, the, the strips of linen and the face cloth, he doesn't, he doesn't need help getting out of them, right? They're, they're left behind. He shows complete and, and total victory over them. The power of God is on display in his resurrection. We see their response. Verse eight, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So we see as John goes, he saw and believed. And even though there's still some confusion and they didn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together about how the Old Testament and the scriptures were pointing forward to this, it still says that he believed. He had this initial sense of Jesus is alive. And so friends, I simply want us to see from the text that this empty tomb The message of the resurrection is the center of our hope, uh, the center of the Christian faith, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In the resurrection, we see uh, new creation breaking into God's world that God will redeem. 
and renew a broken world that is marked by sin and death. God is not done with his world. He's doing something new here. And it's interesting too, that all four of the resurrection accounts, if you go back and look at them in the gospels, all four of them start with on the first day of the week. Which again, maybe that's simply describing when it happened. It was Sunday morning, it happened. But also some of the prophecies and some of the earlier accounts in the gospels mention how Jesus will rise on the third day. And so it's, it's interesting that, that none of the authors of the gospels use that language. On the third day, uh, he rose when they're talking about uh, the resurrection. Instead, they say on the first day of the week, this happened. It's almost to, it's striking. And it's almost to highlight, again, God is doing something new here. This new creation. Jesus is victorious over sin and death. And that's good news for the whole world. And that's also good news for us individually. Personally. Because Jesus says in John 11, he said, "What well, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Well, Romans 6.4 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you see that because of the resurrection, if we believe in Jesus, uh, we will live. We will experience this newness of life that only Jesus can offer. The resurrection shows us that God can take what is dead and make it alive. If we're Christians, it means that God's unlimited resurrection power then is at work in us by his spirit. And we need to remember that because so often we get just caught up in our normal routines and assumptions about what's possible in the world. And sometimes we can be quite pessimistic or discouraged. Nothing's ever going to change. This relationship is never going to change. This situation is never going to be different. Um, And we have to look then to the resurrection and see the explosive and profound and unlimited power of God on display to change anything. We have to think apart from the resurrection, if this isn't true, I mean, what, what hope do we have? Without the resurrection, what hope do we have? I mean, make the most of your time now because you're, you know, you're going to die and there's no bigger picture and no bigger story and, and no redemption coming and no hope and the wrongs won't be made right and, and the bad guys will get away with it all, right? There's just no bigger story. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. Some of you might have remember this uh, a few years ago, Rick Warren, uh, the pastor of Saddleback Church and author of The Purpose Driven Life, Um, together with his wife, Kay, they went through just a a devastating and tragic loss uh, when their 27-year-old son took his own life after a long battle with depression and mental illness. And about a year after that tragedy, uh, Rick said this. He said, I've often been asked, how how have you made it? Like, how, how have you kept going with such great, pain. And he says, I often reply, the answer is Easter. And he said this, he said, you see the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday, good Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. 
And then he says, but Easter, that Sunday was the day of hope and joy and victory. And he said this, here's the fact of life. You'll face those three days over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do in my days of pain? Number two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? And he says the answer is not in ourselves or in our own strength. The answer is in the resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's Easter. It's the, the power of God, the new life that God can bring that gives us hope. Right? We're, First Peter tells us we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We have this living hope and confidence that God is still at work, that God can redeem and sustain and renew, even when things look dark and tragic. It's because of the resurrection. So, so in the text, we have the reality of the empty tomb that we have to grapple with. But the second half of the text this morning shows us this, this personal encounter that Mary has with Jesus. Mary at some point returns to the tomb and look at verse 11. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She still doesn't know exactly what's going on as we'll see. She thinks the body of Jesus was stolen. She's weeping. And just a side note here, she's weeping. And in studying this week, it was clear that Jewish culture was, and the Bible takes really seriously um, the need to express our grief and process our emotions. We see Mary's weeping. Uh, She's not not repressing what she's feeling. In fact, um, in ancient world, mourners uh, for that first week as they're mourning would not wash or uh, kind of work or, or have sex or even study the law uh, for that time of mourning. They said, this is like a dedicated time where we need to, to process what this loss means and grieve. And again, they would even wear certain clothes to, to express that. And I point that out. I just think it's a helpful note because sometimes we think uh, today that, well, like if I'm a person of faith and I take the Bible seriously, then, you know, emotions have, you know, I just have to pretend everything's good and, and this doesn't really sting or hurt so bad because, you know, I have, I have hope or whatever. And the reality is though that, that we um, are meant to express our emotions, process our emotions. It's actually good and right and healthy. And the Bible shows us examples of this over and over again that we don't need to just repress or push down our emotions. We, need, we can talk about them and feel them. And, and again, uh, the culture in, in the Bible, they, they made space for this. And, and we should too. So it's tragic for Mary. In her mind, she's thinking she can't bestow this final act of love and honor upon uh, her Lord, upon her master, upon her teacher, because she thinks he's gone. But, but it's... The text continues, right? Verse, verse 11. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And don't worry, in, in the text, the woman, it's not like, woman! It's, it's, it's a gentle, it's a term of endearment. Woman, um, I know we read it that way and you're like, mm. but it's, it's, a, it's a gentle term. Why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where 
they have put him. She weeps. She looks in the tomb. There's two angels there. All four accounts of the resurrection point to uh, the angel's presence. And she still thinks the body has been taken, verse 13. Uh, But again, the presence of these angels uh, reinforces that, again, this is not the work of robbers. This is not some chaotic crime scene. Um, This is not some human catastrophe. This is actually, again, the the hand and presence of God at work here. And so she sees them. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her again, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where You have put him and I will get him. Again, she still thinks the body of Jesus has been stolen. So she's like, where is he? Maybe this guy knows. Gardner, could you tell me where he has gone? And it's interesting because in a number of Jesus' resurrection appearances, the initial reaction is that they don't see who he is. They can't quite discern that it's him yet. He's not recognized at first. And then later, they, you know, a light bulb turns on for the disciples as they see him. There's, there's continuity then in his, his earthly body. It's, it's him, right? And yet his, his resurrection body, there's, a, there's been a change, a, a transformation. Something is different about it without a doubt. And she thinks he's the gardener. Now, earlier we were told, right, that this tomb was in a garden. And so maybe it's a, you know... A, a normal assumption. Hey, we're in the garden. This guy must be staff and work here. And so maybe he knows, you know, where Jesus went. That's what she's thinking uh, while he's there, you know, trimming the hydrangea bushes or whatever else was going on in that garden. And it's interesting again, because you look at that detail of the text. She thought he was the gardener and some people um, make a lot out of that. Like there's a lot of depth and symbolism there. And other people will say that we don't make much out of that. It's just a simple Detail. And so some would say something like this. Hey, well, it was dark and it was early and maybe she was blinded by her tears and the tomb after all was in a garden. And so she saw someone and she just thought, assumed it was the gardener. And that's just because that's what happened. No greater significance. That's all that it means. Some would say though, that there's a, a, a symbolic reality at play here. And they would say, well, okay, she thinks he's the gardener. Well, where else have we seen a garden in the Bible? Right, Genesis chapter one, the very beginning, the garden of Eden. And the first Adam walked in the garden at creation and was there to cultivate it. And so now we have the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, there in the garden of new creation, you could say, and he will cultivate this explosive new life of God out into the world. And so they say, so in one sense, uh, Mary's wrong. He's not the gardener, it's, it's Jesus. And yet in a deeper sense, maybe she's actually right. And he is the ultimate gardener, the, the new Adam, the one who's bringing new life and new creation into his world, as Genesis 1 pointed to now here in the resurrection. I think there's something to that. I think you can make an argument either way, how much we make of that, but I think that there's significance there. So she doesn't recognize him, but then notice something changes. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So it all changes. When does everything change? When does the light bulb come on for her? It's when the risen Jesus calls her by name. Mary. She hears her name, likely no doubt as she'd heard it before. And she turns and cries out, Rabboni, teacher. She, she knows it's him. And here we, we get some echoes or reminders of, of John chapter 10. You remember when Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd? And there he says, he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So the good shepherd calls Mary by name and she knows his voice. The text wraps up. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Do not cling to me. Arguably some difficult verses to translate there, verse 17. But essentially the idea is I'm, I have work for you to do. I'm sending you out with a message. The reality of my resurrection is not this um, private thing that you, Mary, get to enjoy. But uh, you need to go and tell my brothers this the disciples, um, and he's going to ascend back to the father. So the relationship is not like it was before. It's been fundamentally changed. We can talk about that more in the weeks ahead. So he sends Mary to the others and she goes and declares, I have seen the Lord. And so I simply want us to see that this encounter with Mary, I think points us to the reality that the resurrection is both a historical fact that we grapple with, And it invites us into this personal encounter with Jesus. So like the first half of the text, verses one through eight, there's the the historical reality of the empty tomb that we have to somehow make sense of, somehow think through what that means for our lives, that Jesus is alive. But the resurrection is not just some cold uh, idea, theory, um, piece of information, fact of history out there that we kind of keep at arm's length. It is, is also this uh, personal encounter with the risen Jesus that we're each invited to. Right? He, he calls us by name. So there are these massive implications for the world and how the resurrection changes eternity and all of history. But there's also these profound personal implications for each one of us. And that's where we need to take some time, you know, beyond just this message. We need to take time to sit with that and say, Jesus, if you are alive, what does that mean for me? How ought I to respond to you and follow you? What does that mean for my life? Because we could talk about the, like, the, the facts of the resurrection and all, all the reasons to believe that it actually happened. I think there are plenty of good reasons to believe that it happened. We could talk through the apologetics and here's all the arguments about why we can be confident that this happened. But, but sometimes people will still hear that and then shrug it off. Or have you ever had that where um, you can be like, well, yeah, that might be true or probably is even true, but I'm just going to, you know, go on living my life. Actually, we've seen more and more in the past few years how sometimes facts and information don't always change people's opinion. <laughs> right? Yeah. And depending on what side you are politically, you're like, yeah, that's what the other side does. But, 
Really, facts and data information doesn't always convince people. And so um, we have to move from just facts and data information, as important as that is, to then, what, again, what does this really mean for my life? Right? You can know something's true, but it doesn't always have an impact on you right away. Or we know vegetables are good for us, but that doesn't stop us from eating them sparingly and eating at McDonald's instead. Right? We can know certain pieces of information, and yet we have to personalize them and say, well, what does this actually mean for my life? And is it going to cause me to live differently? And so I simply want to remind you this morning that the gospel is not only that Jesus died for you and he, he rose again, but also that he calls you by name. He knows you and he invites you personally to follow him and trust in him and come under his care as your shepherd and experience this new life that he alone can offer and provide. And then it's up to each one of us to determine what, what's the next step. Have I believed and put my trust in him for the first time? If not, I want to give my life to him. Or uh, is there a next step into community, joining a community group this fall, trying our our rooted discipleship group that we're starting up in a few weeks you'll be hearing more about. Maybe sharing the love of Jesus, inviting someone to church, uh, uh, talking more openly in my workplace, uh, going out of my way to, to love other people that are in need, showing the love of Jesus in practical ways. Lord Jesus, if you're alive, that changes everything. So how do you want to use me? Let's pray. Well, Father, we read John 20 and we're just reminded of this explosive claim of the empty tomb. And we see your clear hand in it. The presence of the angels, your power and victory on display. God, we just pray that you would help us uh, trust in you, help us believe uh, that this truly happened and then devote our lives fully to following you. Help us hear you call our name and respond in faith. Jesus, you're the hero of the story. And so it's you that we worship. You're the risen king that we, we joyfully and humbly bow before. We thank you for forgiving us of our sins. We thank you for making us alive with you. And that gives us hope, not just uh, in this life, in the temporary setting, but uh, we have eternal life in you. We'll be with you and walk with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.